You're listening to the Overeaters Anonymous Mid-Peninsula Podcast. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. For more information, please visit oamidpeninsula.org. Thank you for your service, Sandra, and uh, everybody else that's doing uh, service here. You guys are um, you guys are a handful of long timers. I feel like, what does this this little baby toddler OA have to say to all you guys? Um, but uh, I know um, I've I've been taught in this program that when people ask me to to speak, it's an opportunity to show up for my own recovery, and. Um, yeah, I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be here. Uh, I, I mentioned it earlier, but um, I've been in OA now for about five years. I, uh, I have about four and a half years of abstinence from compulsive overeating or compulsive food behaviors while working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. I have uh, given uh, back about 70 or 80 pounds in this program um, by the grace of God, not by my own doing. Um, and uh, to get really clear, I had to get really clear about what my abstinence uh, was about a year or two ago. Um, not to make it so black and white, but just to get really clear. Um, and for me, what that looks like is uh, no recreational sugar. And uh, more recently, I let go of flour. So I'm kind of a no sugar, no flour type of a way. Um, um, and I also, my behaviors are uh, binging and grazing. And, and that type of stuff. So I abstain from those. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a long time now. So yeah, I'm super gra- grateful to be here. I've been in, uh, I have a sponsor. Uh, I'm sponsored in this program and I have about three sponsees that I'm aware of. There are a lot of men out there that claim they're my, that I'm their sponsor, uh, but I don't know where they're at. I don't hear from them. But uh, <laughs> so I have three that I'm aware of <laughs> that are working the steps. I've done the steps in this program, uh, all 12. And um, yeah, this uh, the program, the long and the long and short of it is I'm a real I'm a real compulsive overeater, a real deal compulsive overeater. Um, and the OA program has really transformed my life. So what it was like. OK. Um, I have a tendency to get stuck on what it's like because it's so easy, right? I've got so much time um, in the disease versus time in recovery. Um, But I'm going to try not to get too bogged down there. But um, for me, this is a childhood thing, childhood obesity. Um, I remember when I was about 10 years old or something of that nature, I remember going to the doctor and and uh, coming back and like the, my weight was a topic of, of issue. And, and that's when my mom started putting me on diets and stuff like that. Um, you know, I have all the, the, the childhood obesity embarrassment, you know, all the embarrassing stories that go along with uh, being overweight as a child, you know, being made fun of, um, you know, the embarrassing moments of taking off your shirt in the locker room so that they can check your back for scoliosis, you know, the 
the inability to um, to do certain exercises during the presidential fitness challenge. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I might be showing my age now a little bit with those things. I don't know if the if the, if the kids still do that, but uh, um, yeah, you know, all of those embarrassing moments. Um, I, I have that in my story. Skipping ahead, I um, I lost a bunch of weight when I was in high school, and that part of my story is super significant because it was the first time I realized that people would treat me differently based on the way that I looked. Okay. And so I ended up going to, uh, to college on an academic scholarship and, um, it was, um, clear to me that I needed to maintain my grades in order to, to pay for college, um, or to, to, to have that scholarship. Um, and so like, I, I'm one of these, uh, addicts, um, over compulsive overeaters that um, was able to kind of hide behind success as opposed to the kind that like really struggled to kind of live up to their potential. Um, I don't know that I was, was living up to my full potential in the disease, but what I mean is aside from me being clearly overweight, I had a lot of material success, a lot of cash and prizes that allowed me to think that I was doing okay. Um, but um, when I graduated, I, for my, my first year of college, I, I gained the freshman 15. I probably gained another 30 the next year. By the time I graduated college, I was almost 300 pounds. And um, I just remember spending a lot of my adult life post-college chasing that feeling that I had when I was in high school and lost all that weight and got the girl and, you know, all of those things. Um, so, you know, I did the whole yo-yo dieting thing for a while. Um, you know, I, my body responds very quickly to stimulus. Um, so I would, you know, do the fasting things and the diet things and I would lose, you know, 30 pounds in 20 days and then I would gain 40 pounds back, you know? Um, and so I did that thing where I you know, kept going up and down and eventually I just kind of gave up you know, and just kind of, um, you know, accepted that I was going to be a larger person. And, um, you know, I spent most of my life trying to get the girl, <laughs> you know, I think that was like the ultimate goal is just to like get the girl. Um, and you know, I, I, my ways, my, the way that my head, um, processed that was, if I lost the weight, then I could get the girl. If I got the girl, then it really didn't matter how much I weighed. And if I could get a certain amount of money, then maybe I could manipulate my way into both of those. And so uh, what happened for me in 2014 is uh, a lot of these things started to come true as an adult and as a, as a, as a young professional. Um, got the girl, had the fancy uh, living situation. Um, you know, certain number on my W-2, never really lost a ton of weight, but, um, you know, I started to check a lot of those boxes. My life was seemingly good on the outside, um, but it really wasn't. And so, you know, what happened was I was just kind of, you know, in terms of the food stuff, um, my life just got really, really small. So even though I was living with someone and I wasn't alone, I was very isolated and kind of in my own bubble. And so, my life, I'm sober now, but my life basically consisted of getting high off weed and eating, um, waiting for watching, going to work, doing the bare minimum, waiting for the clock to strike so I could leave, get high, get food 
and then barely show up for the rest of the afternoon. So, you know, the food for me in the disease looks like fourth meal, fifth meal, you know, waking up, hitting the fast food joint in the morning, drinking sodas all day, working in the tech industry, access to all the food and snacks for free that you could want. Um, you know, and, and that's what I did. And being in the disease for me means driving 30 miles out of the way to a 24 seven Starbucks just to get the sweet treat and the, uh, you know, um, knowing what time the donut shop opens or, you know, knowing when the fresh donuts are served at two in the morning at this specific donut shop, you know, um, that's what the disease looks like for me. A lot of sugar, a lot of numbing out with food, a lot of eating because I'm bored, uh, because I'm sad, because I'm happy, because I'm celebrating. Um, you know, I'm most comfortable when I'm in a situation where I'm eating. Um, you know, my best friends in town were like the waitresses and the servers at the local restaurants. You know, like that's how small my life had gotten. And um, I kind of, uh, I did a couple of geographics. Um, moving from Atlanta um, to LA and then LA to Orange County. And um, basically I got to the point where like life wasn't worth living. I don't, I don't know that I was suicidal. Um, I mean, you guys have taught me l vocabulary around uh, suicide and you guys, uh, you guys have taught me a lot of language to describe what was going on. So I think um, I, I wasn't suicidal. Um, I was starting to have those kind of ideations, but I didn't necessarily step into the area of planning or, or trying or executing. Um, but I just got to a point where I was definitely, um, I think what, what you, how we would describe it in this program is like spiritually bankrupt. Um, and I just didn't really have a life worth living anymore. And it was suggested that I get sober. So I got sober. Um, I went to another program to get sober and um, I started getting into the step work there. And when I got sober, I started getting the feelings and started some emotions came up and some dis some restlessness and some discontent and some uncomfortability. And, um, and the, uh, my sponsor, who's not one of, not a compulsive reader suggested that I, uh, you know, continue working with the steps but in the moment, grab some chocolate, <laughs> you know, go get some ice cream, you know, take that snack commitment, you know. And so I followed those instructions. Thank you. I see that. I followed those instructions. I ate a lot of chocolate. I ate a lot of ice cream. I ate a lot of donuts. I took a lot of snack commitments at the, at the sober meetings. I would go buy pizzas. I would buy one pizza for myself and one pizza for the meeting. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, needless to say, I rolled into that program 300 pounds and I, I shot up to, you know, 330 pounds in my, uh, in it, in my first, you know, 90, you know, 90 days in that program. And, um, luckily somebody that's in this program also, but it was also in that program came and shared and talked about some weird behavior with M&Ms, you know, and I was like, huh, I can identify with that. And she, I think, I don't remember exactly who my Eskimo was, but I think I asked her something about what she was doing for food. I think that that was how I got introduced to the concept of OA, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. You know, when you go to one program, you start to hear about all the other ones anyway. Um, but, um, 
at the seed got planted somehow, some way. And I started talking to my sponsor about the food stuff. And I said, Hey, I think I might need to go to this other program to deal with this food stuff. Uh, you know, what came, became clear to me is that I was using food like I was using drugs. Um, and he, you know, um, like most people will say in another program, when you're just kind of getting started off, you know, and you're only on step three, you know, he was like, you know, you should focus, you know, try to finish your steps um, and then see where you go from there. And so, you know, mind you, I kept eating and, uh, you know, I kept complaining. Uh, I would go, I remember going uh, to meetings and I would go binge after the meetings and pass out in my car waiting for the next sobriety meeting to start. And, um, I, I, you know, I kept complaining and my sponsor finally said, well, you have to focus on whatever's going to kill you the quickest. And so I sat with that for a while, ended up having like a doctor's appointment or something. Uh, and the doctor said, oh, you're now classified as morbidly obese. You're at risk of heart failure. You are officially pre-diabetic. And there's something wrong with your blood. It looks like you're, you're struggling to get oxygen. Um, you, look, you look like you have a very severe case of sleep apnea or something. Sleep apnea is so bad that your blood cells look different. That's how they figured it out, right? Um, so what, in that moment, what, what became very clear to me is that I was killing myself with food and I didn't, I'm, I, something told me that I may not have another three months. I may not have another year to figure the, the food stuff out. And, um, that's what, that's what led me to OA. And so that's how I got to program. I came to OA. I go to the, uh, I go to meetings on the West side of Los Angeles where there are a lot of beautiful women who are anorexics and bulimics. And, um, there's, uh, you know, what people would describe as like volume eating. And those weren't really my story. Um, exactly. Um, a binge for me looks like eating a whole box of cookies, not necessarily going to, um, multiple drive-throughs back, back and back and back and forth hoarding a bunch of food and taking it home and eating it all at once until I like throw it. That's not how the disease actually looked for me. I had to get very clear on what a binge was for me. A binge for me is eating a whole box of cookies. You know, that mindless sitting in front of the TV and then all of a sudden the box is empty. And it's not that one is better than the other. Uh, you know, it, it's just, I had to get very clear on what, what my form of the disease looked like. But the point is I sat around for about six months looking at all the differences and not focusing on the similarities. And I, I had a really hard time relating to the anorexics and the bulimics. And I used those differences to separate and to not get in the work. And um, you guys told me to find uh, somebody that had what I wanted. And so I was looking for a black man, a hundred pounder, uh, uh, and somebody that looked like the rock. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I was looking for. <laughs> and I didn't find that. So, um, you know, I, I started getting bitter and angry and uh, I just kept writing on the little, on the notebooks that we would uh, go around. I just kept looking, writing for a sponsor. I asked a couple of men to sponsor me. It was, it was just weird interactions. You know, I was in the food, in the disease. So, you know, sometimes you take things, uh, you perceive things incorrectly or take things personal when you're in the disease. Um, but bottom line, I ended up stumbling across this guy. We met, uh, I asked him to be my sponsor. We met and I'm sitting there telling him about how I'm not an anorexic. I'm not a bulimic. I'm not a 10,000 calorie binger. 
And he let me finish. And he said, he lovingly said, Rashad, well, you're the size that you are for a reason. It's clear that your body's getting more food than it needs. Thank you. So that day, <laughs> I went on a tear. It started at a bagel shop in Santa Monica and ended at a, at a drive-through Popeye's at two in the morning in the ghetto. And I sat there two in the morning with all of the people that are out at the night, right? So we got crackheads, homeless people, prostitutes, pimps, gangsters, and I'm one of those crackheads. I'm sitting in my car one after one, putting these biscuits in my mouth. I'm not hungry, mind you, but I can't even drive home. I'm, I'm there and I'm in it. And, uh, you know, I, I had my white light moment in that car with a, with a head full of program and a belly full of white flour. And I woke up the next morning and something was lifted. And I've never gone back to eating in that way. Um, so it's important for me to remember that because, you know, sometimes I want to get back into the control of, of manipulating my food plan. And, and I have to really remember that, like, I didn't control this abstinence. I just kept coming back. You know, I just kept coming back in the way that I maintain the abstinence is I like I got into the work. Um, so when I did the steps in OA it was my second time around the steps. And so it allowed me to go a little bit deeper. You know, I was no longer like eating while doing my step work. <laughs> that was the thing I didn't realize that I was doing when I did the steps the first time. I was like eating while I was doing the steps. Um, and so this time it allowed me to get a little bit more clear. The biggest thing, um, the biggest things, there's multiple things that happened for me is, you know, one, I had tremendous amount of physical recovery. Um, but the, the second time around the steps going through an OA really, really solidified my relationship with a higher power. And, um, you know, the first time around the steps, I was really just acting as if, but the second time in OA, it really, really sunk in. And I started to see this, how man, I started to see how step three manifesting in my life really was working. And, um, and I've kept that, that relationship with my higher power ever since then. Not to say that I don't occasionally try to take my will back. And then I quickly get reminded that that's not how this program works. The other thing is that, you know, I got to uh, look at, I got to do the inventory again and, and something always comes up if I'm willing to do the inventory. Um, but the last thing that was very transformative uh, doing the steps in OA is I, um, I found the willingness to really make my financial amends. And um, that was just like an amazing experience to really unload all of that stuff and just kind of trust the process. And I had some big financial amends, thousands of dollars. And one of them was forgiven. And one of them was not clear about forgiving me or not. <laughs> and so the instruction was, you send that check every month until that is paid off, whether they said you have to or not. And I did that. And, um, you know, today my life is, is amazing. I, um, it's gotten so big and beautiful. And, and I, I have to remember that, like, to keep doing what, what got me to this point. And I do a lot of service in, in OA. That really helps me um, stay in the middle of the herd. And, and lately, um, a, a fellow that I really admire and trust, like reminded me, you know, like, like where I'm at now is, is I really have to stay actively engaged in steps 10, 11, and 12. And the disease for me is super, super sneaky, super sneaky, super subtle. And I have to be vigilant about um, combating the the disease of compulsive overeating by staying in the work 
and staying in touch with sponsees and being of service and really nurturing that relationship with my higher power and, and not forgetting to take inventory, you know, regularly to check in and promptly admitting when I'm wrong. So I'll wrap up with this. Um, I'm, I'm super imperfect in this program and, and, uh, in life. And during the pandemic, I was got, you know, fearful, you know, some self-centered fear came up and I stole hand sanitizer from this place that wasn't selling it, but they, I noticed they had a lot of it and I couldn't buy it anywhere. So my old addict came out and said, well, it's okay to take it. So I got in the car and this is like old school thievery, like put it in my shirt and had, you know, like, and uh, I got in the car and got about a minute, 60 seconds down the road. And, I, and, I, and it kind of like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, is, is this really what's happening right now? And, um, you know, just like, oh, no, actually, no, this is not how we operate. And so I had to promptly, I had to, re- I had to do a spot check mental inventory right there on the spot. And I realized that not only did I have to return it, that I had to promptly admit that I was wrong. So imagine having, you know, thank you, I hear that, I wrap up. Imagine having, you know, this much time, not as much time as some of the people in this room, but four, four and a half years, five years in another program, that's, you know, that's a nice chunk of time. But I had to go back and I wanted to just leave it on the doorstep, ring the doorbell and run. And I, you know, I knocked on the door, I explained what I did, I gave it back, I asked what I could do, you know, to make it right. And they said, relax, it's okay. And they gave me a free bottle to take with me, a small free bottle to take with me. And my, what I took away from that was my higher power letting me know that, hey, I got you. Like, it's okay, I got you. Um, so that's an embarrassing story, but it's important to be honest and truthful. And I'm so grateful that I have a, tools to help me get back on the right path when I swerve off with food or stealing, you know, or stuff like that. So thanks for letting me share.